Good morning, everyone. My name is Brian Pierce. This is what I look like when I shave my beard. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> so my name is John Huggins, actually. I'm the chaplain at Berry College and uh, excited to be filling in for Brian this morning. <clears throat> On Twitter this morning, I saw a little cartoon that had a preacher saying, uh, before you sit down, turn to someone you don't know and say, let's have coffee. And ushers, please go greet all the introverts who slipped away to the bathroom. I was just in there. Uh, we can let them out now. I uh, woke up at about 3.30 this morning with a headache and I couldn't go back to sleep. And I was thinking about the sermon. So I got up and more or less rewrote the sermon uh, which was all fine and good, except that was about eight hours ago, and so now <laughs> I feel a little bit sleepy. Uh, so I might not make it through the sermon, so let's pray together. <clears throat> Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer. Please awaken our hearts and minds to be astonished and in awe of your radical love and generosity towards us in Christ. In his name I pray, amen. Uh, This morning I just want to offer some simple reflections on one of Jesus' parables in the Gospel of Matthew. It's a a parable that's sometimes called the laborers in the vineyard. And it's a parable that sometimes we, we might struggle with it a little bit. Its meaning is sometimes less obvious to us than some of other Uh, Jesus' other parables, but I think it has a powerful message for us about the grace of God. And as I offer these few reflections, what I hope is that you will hear proclaimed afresh the generous love of God and be able to so appropriate and embrace it that you can hear an exhortation to join in God's generosity for the world. So I'd like to read the text in Matthew chapter 20. Verses 1 through 16, you can follow in your Bible, on your app, or on the screen. Here's the word of the Lord. Jesus said, The kingdom of God is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. 
Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Somebody knows the right response right there. <laughs> this parable, um, it is sandwiched in between two statements about the last being first and the first last. He says it just at the end of chapter 19, which I didn't read, and then right here at the end of this passage. And it, it's a part of this whole reversal theme that you come across in the Gospels where Jesus is showing that the kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of this world, that his movement doesn't have the same rules as the kingdoms of this world. It seems upside down to us because in it, the last are first and the first will be last. And if you want to be great, you should make yourself the servant of all. Um, And if you want to follow Jesus, you should love your enemies and your neighbor as yourself. Very different than the way the kingdoms of this world work. Also throughout the Gospels, the disciples learn that they're going to receive a lot of great things by being a part of his kingdom. Uh, But he warns them in this parable not to begrudge, that is to say take offense, at God's generosity to others who come in later or who seem to do less. Uh, That word begrudge, we need to bring that back, don't we? Next time you're in an argument with your friend or spouse, use that. Do not begrudge me. It's biblical. You can use that. It essentially means to take offense at. And the landowner in this parable, like in other parables like it, where Jesus has a landowner, uh, represents God, and he's teaching us something about God, something about what God was doing through him, uh, why Jesus sometimes was hanging out with the wrong people, uh, people that religious leaders didn't think he should associate with, and enfranchising other people who were on the margins of society. So this landowner operates, one of the things you notice in the text is he operates not out of uh, limited resources, but out of an abundance, right? He doesn't seem to operate with an attitude towards his resources being scarce, not scarcity, but abundance, so that he can give to the ones who worked only a little, the same as those who worked all day. And he seems to delight in giving it, such that in this case, all are equal in that all receive a day's wage, which is what a denarius is. So he's not being unfair to anyone. He's giving everyone a day's wage. He's allowing those who came at the end to receive all that they need by getting a day's wage, just like those who worked all day. Now, this is not exactly a kind of social justice commentary as much as we get in other places, though it does establish equality as a principle of the kingdom. Uh, In this case, people are receiving more than they deserve, right? You see, none of these folks had to be hired in the first place. And all were promised a day's wage, which was just. Most of them receive a day's wage without having worked the whole day. And in this sense, the landowner doesn't cheat anyone, but is generous to all. Now, let me say something about the latecomers here. Sometimes we assume that the latecomers are... Lazy people are, you know, unwilling to work or something. And I'm not sure that's correct because the text actually says that they were still out there at the 11th hour because 
no one had hired them, which suggests to me not that they were lazy or unwilling, but that no one wanted them. And if this is true, it makes the text even more extraordinary, doesn't it? That Jesus is saying that God is willing to take people no one else wants and welcome them and give them work to do in his kingdom, and he makes them equal to all the others. Well, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's pretty wonderful, except that not everybody seems to think so, especially those who've worked all day. Now, when I read this parable or when you hear it, how does it affect you? Like, just be self-aware for a second. Does it bother you a little bit? Do you read this parable and think, well, I kind of understand why they were grumbling, you know? <laughs> um, are, are any of you in here the oldest of a number of siblings? Anybody in here the oldest of a number of siblings? Okay, well, you'll resonate with this story. So I'm the oldest of three siblings. My younger brother and younger sister, most of you know, Josh is the charming one with lots of talent. Gretchen is the very pretty one uh, who's able to speak her mind, and I'm the oldest, uh, and they can't take that away from me. <clears throat> but as the oldest, I felt that, I, that nothing came uh, easy growing up. I had to work and earn everything. Anything new I got, I had to pay for and I was not allowed, you know, the, uh, all the privileges I thought some of my friends were allowed. My parents were strict towards me and all of that. And then my brother comes along. He was about 10 years younger than me. And he gets everything in my mind. It's like I had to share a room with him when I was in middle school. He gets a whole second floor to himself when he's in middle school. My dad bought me a, you know, a $1,200 beat-up car for my 16th birthday, which was generous. When he was 14, he got a Jeep Wrangler truck, I mean, a Jeep that he's waiting for, you know, for when he turns 16. And I look back on that, and I think, hey, this is not fair. I'm having to work for stuff, and you're just letting him do whatever he wants. He comes home with ear piercings and tattoos, you know, and all that. I, you would have killed me if I did that. Well, you know, it's not really that it was unfair. They were just giving me one thing and him another. They gave me responsibility and gave him everything else. I'm just kidding. He's very responsible. His boss is here. He's very responsible. <laughs> he is very responsible. And, I'm, and I really am just, just joking. This is funny. And we joke about this in our family. But you resonate with this if you're an oldest sibling, right? You know, that's probably, it felt like that was the case from time to time. And you know what? I'm paying it forward. I have three kids now. The oldest one's going to have to work for it. She's going to have to be responsible. And the youngest one, well, he's our only boy, you know? He might, <laughs> he might seem favored, but he's not. What does, the, what does it suggest about our hearts when we feel this way? When we begrudge that someone else seems to be getting something that we didn't get or that we think we deserve and they didn't have to work as hard for what does it say about our hearts in the ultimate sense if we do not rejoice when others receive the generous love of God? Well, whatever else it might say about us, it at least says that we are not like God in a very important sense. <clears throat> See, I keep getting the impression the more I read and study Scripture 
that God is a lot better than I often imagine him to be. God is more gracious, more powerful and good. He is more wise, more willing to forgive than I usually imagine. Uh, God does not give from scarcity. Therefore, he doesn't have to protect himself, even though we like to protect him. Uh, But we, on the other hand, often give with a view towards our limited resources and therefore are less generous than God. We do not often feel that we have an abundance of love, compassion, or patience, so people just get it in measure. But I think if God is really better than we often imagine him to be, and we are the people who worship him, are seeking to be like him, and to follow his son, maybe there's a better way for us. And maybe we are actually richer in the spirit than we think. I also think that we sometimes sympathize with those who worked all day and who were complaining in the parable when we imagine that we are them. That is to say, when we imagine that we ourselves are the ones working all day, the ones who are perhaps better than other folks who are doing more. I want to suggest that that is possibly not true. For one, all of us benefit and build upon the work of those who came before us, the labors of others. And in our case, we benefit from 2,000 years of church history and the work of the Spirit from which to learn and grow um, and build upon. And secondly, we're actually not as good as we would like to imagine. I can remember in college thinking that I would become a pretty good husband one day. Sitting alone in my dorm room with no one bothering me, imagining myself to be a rather good person, I thought, one day, I'll make a great catch. But then I got married and realized that maybe the job's harder than I thought. Not because my wife is particularly challenging. In fact, she's less challenging than a lot of other girlfriends I had along the way. Um, The problem is me. Because when you imagine yourself married when you're not, you imagine, I'll be great because you're thinking of yourself at your best. The problem is you're not always at your best. You're not always so full of patience and kindness and patience. And then I thought, well, I'll probably be a pretty good father one day. I had good parents. I'll be a good parent too until I had children. And then I realized this job is a little more demanding than I expected. It will take you to the end of yourself and beyond in wonderful ways. But I need a lot of help. And I found the same to be true in friendships and in my work. And I think that if we're honest, we all need to uh, recognize that we need God's abundant mercy and grace all the time. And we never stop needing it, no matter how much we progress in our faith. And in the ultimate sense, in this parable, it's important for us to understand that it's actually Jesus alone who does all the work to acquire the wage that we receive. He does it all, and all who are found in him get to share in the resurrection and in eternal life. But it's by his work alone that we find forgiveness and are reconciled to God. None of us are achieving that on our own. So we receive the gift of salvation having done nothing to earn it and therefore have no leg to stand on apart from the grace of Christ. And that's important for us to remember if we are not to become bitter 
and begrudge the generosity of God towards others. Now, there's a a related issue that comes up when people read this parable. I know in part, because I think I've thought about it myself, and recently I was talking about it and someone brought this question up to me. Uh, In light of the parable, they were asking, well, what do you think about uh, deathbed conversions? Are people who sort of intentionally wait until later in life, who put off responding to God, to the gospel, to Jesus. And they might look at a parable like this and think, hey, well, it's okay. You know, I still get the big reward in the end. Uh, I can just wait as if you could plan your life, you know, and it go accordingly. <clears throat> but they might think it's okay. I can just wait till later. What should we think about that? Well, the person who brought it up to me was suggesting it. Well, that's not fair. If God grants them the same gift of salvation in the last moment of their life, having put off responding to him to give them everything that he gives, save me, you know, for doing the things that I'm doing in service to Christ. And I begin to think on this more, and I think that if we know God in all of his goodness and wonder and glory, we know that that's actually a very sad situation when someone puts off responding to the gospel or who thinks, I'll wait to deal with God later in my life. If we know God, we want other people to share in his life and blessings. And so it seems sad to us because a person doesn't get more out of life by putting off Christ and the gospel. They get less. It's a loss. It's not a gain to delay because we believe that real life, good life, abundant life is life in Christ. Life with Christ. And someone who puts that off misses out on that life. Misses out on enjoying the friendship of Jesus as they walk through life. Misses out on knowing and enjoying being loved by God. Uh, One misses out on the opportunity to serve Him with their lives and in His name. Uh, Sometimes people will put off dealing with Jesus, with God with the gospel um, because they desire freedom. That is, uh, freedom to do as they please. Uh, Freedom from the hardships of discipleship, which require sometimes really intentional and tough obedience. But I want to say, we who are in Christ ought to know that being a Christian is not only about the cross of obedience, it's also about the joy of knowing Christ our Lord, in this life. There is fellowship and friendship with God to be experienced here and now. Uh, Plus, the freedom to do as you please when what you please includes sinful or self-destructive things, it's not real freedom. Uh, To act in ways that harm our ability to feel joy and love, that is to harm our soul, This is actually a very tragic form of slavery, and it's a terrible lie. There is no life there. So we believe that real life comes from Christ, so we should pity, pray for, feel compassion for those who put off responding to Christ and desire that they could come and share in the feast that is relationship with God and rejoice when they do. I also want to say, you know, conversion is not simply about life after death. You know, being a Christian isn't just about getting pie in the sky after you die, right? It's also about life here and now. 
I mean, certainly Christians believe that the full reality is yet to come, but even still, life with God now is the only life that brings true blessedness, uh, true hope and peace, joy and love. And if we are like Christ, uh, we will want to see everyone we know liberated from lifelessness, no matter what stage of life they come to know it. We want people to come to know and enjoy God, not begrudge them uh, for having delayed. What are some of the implications for us we might draw from this text? Perhaps you're already sensing some. I just want to highlight a few. One, I think we might should realize that we might be the latecomers in this parable and not the ones who've been laboring all day. We might should consider that. And if we are, that means we are receiving a radical, generous love from God by being able to be made equals with the apostles and the saints from all of church history. The other thing that we might need to realize is that if we are longtime believers who have worked earnestly for Christ and his kingdom all our lives, we need to remember that this is actually the thing we were working for, for other people to come in. And when they come in to know him, we should rejoice with the angels. This is what it was all about. And ultimately, I think we need to remember that Christ alone has labored on our behalf, and we're all equally in need of his work on our behalf and equally redeemed. I also think that the more that we come to know and love God, the more we will want to reflect this abundant generosity to the people around us. We can become people of a magnanimous capacity to welcome and show God's kindness to others. What what would that look like if all of us Christians worldwide had a heart to do so? We would become people who aren't bitter because of what God's doing in another person's life, but we could be eager to be the means of God working in another person's life. See, faithfulness to Christ is not a competition where you have winners and losers. Faithfulness to Christ is an opportunity every day to be used by God to share His life and goodness with the people around us. When Jesus tells this parable, it's as if He's saying, hey, this is what God is doing. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. And so I'm calling you to join in. Come and join in on this. Be like this. I think that it's a spiritual principle that uh, we become like whatever or whomever we worship. In the book of Psalms, it says at least twice with reference to idols, that is false gods, it says, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. And one of the reasons why idolatry was so dangerous and such a sinful thing throughout the Bible was not only were people rejecting the one true God, but idolatry tended to be a kind of gateway sin to all other types of corruption. It made the people more unjust. It made the people more oppressive, more immoral. See, it had a kind of corrupting effect upon people. I sometimes in my class call this the Gollumization of humanity. You know, in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, Gollum's obsessed with the ring, but he once was a normal hobbit, 
relatively normal hobbit, Smeagol, and his obsession with the ring turns him into this ghastly thing that hardly resembles a hobbit anymore, all because of that obsession for the wrong thing. And in many ways, we don't tend to look like this physically, but I think a similar effect happens to our souls, going to get turned inward and become something ghastly. Idolatry does this to us. But true worship, worship of the true God as God has revealed himself to be in scriptures and in the person and work of Jesus, rehumanizes us. That is to say, it redeems us into the image of God, renews us into the image God intended for us to bear from the beginning. And to be the image of God, that's our fundamental human vocation. By that, I mean that we are called by God to reflect him, to represent him to reflect his goodness and wisdom and generosity into the world around us. But see, if we have the wrong vision of God, then we'll reflect something else into the world. If you imagine that God is very strict and exacting, that God is quick to anger and slow to love, which is exactly the opposite of what the text says, right, then we become like that. And I'm sure that all all of us in the church have known other believers like that. And have maybe at times struggled being like that ourselves. But what if we allowed the vision of God that Jesus gives us in parables like this to shape the way that we are? What would we be like then? Let us pray to that end. Let me pray with me. Gracious God, we praise you for your radical generosity in loving us, these latecomers to the show, to the kingdom, for allowing us a share in the resurrection and in eternal life and in the Holy Spirit. We ask to be so renewed, so captured uh, by your love for us that we can't help but be transformed into different sort of people, people who aren't bitter or begrudging towards you or others but people of magnanimous capacity to welcome and show your kindness. People through whom your love can spread, your life can spread. And I do pray for any of those here who are avoiding you, who perhaps are holding back, who perhaps are scared, nervous, or otherwise unwilling to surrender themselves to you. Would you please open the eyes of their heart? to behold you as you're revealed in Jesus and in this parable. And that all defenses would come down and these folks might be welcomed into your life and love in a transforming, fulfilling way. We know there are those around us where we work, where we live and play. Uh, We ask for grace to be life givers, life bringers, people of generous heart, there. We want to do it in Jesus' name and in the power of the Spirit. Amen.